Well, church, something I've discovered to be true is this. Winter can really wear on your soul, can it? Winter can really wear on you. Now, winter didn't really have that much effect on me when we lived in North Carolina, right? They weren't uh, nearly as cold. It wasn't as frigid. We had a few inches here and there, but never feet of snow like we've gotten here. Northeast Ohio winters are just so much worse. Winter here is a lot colder. They last a lot longer. There's significantly more snow. The ground is frozen solid for months at a time. It takes a lot of effort to stay warm during the winter. Everything just seems harder in wintertime. It's all dead. It's all cold. It's all gloomy. And it's all gray. It is just all gray. Winter can really wear on your soul, especially if it continues to linger. And I think that's how people in the Old Testament must have felt as they were waiting for this promised king, the Messiah, to come. They had been waiting for so long. In fact, this time in history is known as the intertestamental period. The intertestamental period. It's the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the book of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew. And I believe this time for them was like a very, very long spiritual winter. As far as we know, God didn't provide any kind of prophet or prophecy. His people were just waiting around silently for this Messiah to come. And God didn't share a single word for 400 years. They were looking out the window, hoping to see a little bit of green. But all they saw was gray. However, what they didn't see was that even in the midst of their cold, cold winter, God was still at work. God was working to bring his son into the world at just the right time. And that's what Galatians 4.4 says. But when the set time had fully come, the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Friends, today we begin a brand new Christmas series called The Colors of Christmas. And we're going to look at four different colors and why each is significant as they relate to the birth of Jesus. And today, you've heard, is the color green. Now, what does green represent? What does it uh, symbolize? Green is the color we look forward to when we come out of winter. Green represents new life. It represents new growth. We get excited when we see those first green blades of grass pop up in the ground. We get excited when we see that first green leaf forming on the tree because when we see green, it lets us know that winter is finally over. And if you've got your, yeah, woohoo, yeah, somebody was excited about that. We just got started, okay, physically. We just got started physically. Well, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, and I want to spend our time in the first three verses. Now, if you're, if you're familiar with the Christmas story, most of the time we skip right over the first three verses because they're, eh, they're kind of historical and we don't really care about that. Verse 4 is where Mary and Joseph start making their way to Bethlehem, and that's where we usually begin picking up the story. But those first three verses are super important because it's from them that we see how God works for us in the wintertime and how he prepared the world for his son's coming at just the right time. So let's begin. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. 
In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So let's break this down. Those first three words, in those days. Everybody say that, in those days. So if you were a Jew living in the first century, the first questions that would come to your mind were, would be, why in those days? Why did it take so long? Why didn't it happen sooner? You see, they had been waiting for the Messiah for literally thousands of years. They had been promised that this Messiah would come, but they hadn't seen him yet. To understand just how long they waited, you actually have to go back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, all the way at the beginning. And there, Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. They're living in paradise. Green is the only color they know up to this point. They're living the life the way that God had originally designed it, one-on-one with him, enjoying his creation. And he gave them one command. What was that? Don't eat from that one tree, that tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't do it. You can do anything you want to, but do not eat from the tree. Wouldn't you know it? They ate from the tree, right? And so at that moment when they disobeyed God and sinned, at that very moment, death came into the world and winter began. Winter began all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Now, they didn't die instantly, but they would eventually die, just like all of us will eventually die. Because of their sin, God told Adam that he was going to have to work the ground for food, and it was going to be hard labor. God told Eve that she was going to have very difficult time and pains during childbirth. And then God also spoke to the serpent, to Satan, and here's what he said. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, that's kind of a strange curse, isn't it? Like, we kind of get the man and the woman's curse, but the snake's curse is a little bit odd. Actually, that is the very first messianic prophecy in the entire Bible. As soon as sin entered the world and winter began, God pointed us to Jesus. He pointed us to Christmas. And he said, the offspring or the seed of the woman will save you from Satan. And I think it's interesting that God said the seed or the offspring of woman. Every other reference to seed in scripture is always talking about the seed of man. But here it's the seed or the offspring of a woman. Why does that matter? Because this is the promise of future generations that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. He would not have an earthly father. His father was in heaven. And this too points us to the promise of Christmas. Ever since then, people had been waiting a long, long time. And I think this is something that you and I can relate to. You see, right now, in 2022, I think we find ourselves living between the pages of Malachi and Matthew. We've been promised that Jesus is going to return again. That's the great hope that you and I hold on to, isn't it? Jesus is going to come back. He's going to come back, but he hasn't come yet, and it's still winter for you and I spiritually. Every single day, we see how cold and dead our world can be, right? We pick up our phones, and we check up the news reports, the highlights. We turn on the TV, 
and we see all this stuff about children being abducted, about a drug epidemic killing our country, killing our kids. In fact, I just heard on the news this week, there was a a babysitter watching this two-year-old kid in Washington, D.C. They were at a local park playing, and he happened to, in the grass, pick up a little fentanyl pill and put it in his mouth. And they had to put Narcan, give him Narcan to save this little kid's life. It happens everywhere. There's brutal violence taking place in broad daylight. There's an economic crisis that's crumbling our country. Wars overseas, attacks on schools, attacks on churches worldwide. And these things cause us to question, God, what are you waiting for? Where are you? Why haven't you sent Jesus back yet? How much longer, God, is it going to be this way? And we start to wonder if he's ever going to fulfill his promise. Well, friends, I want you to know that God has not forgotten about us. He will keep his promise and Jesus will come again. Until then, Until then, I want to encourage you that when you see the color green at Christmas, I want to assure you that winter is almost over. So from now on, when you see that color green, let it remind you that Jesus is coming, that our hope is on his way. So let me share with you three encouraging promises from this passage in Luke chapter 2. If you're taking notes, write this down. Here's the first one. I can trust God's timing. In fact, I want you all to say it with me. I can trust God's timing. Even in the middle of winter, what can you do? When things happen that you don't understand, what can you do? When the world is going crazy around you, you can... When you continue to struggle, you can... No matter what is going on, you can... Emphasis on God's timing. I can trust, we can trust his timing, not our own. You see, in our season of winter, as we wait for the second coming, we have people that start to wonder if Jesus is ever going to return. We get antsy, we get anxious, and that's nothing new. In fact, Peter dealt with this as well. He writes about this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. He says, they will say, talking about Christians, believers, they will say, well, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. In other words, if Jesus is going to come back, why hasn't he come back already? It's been more than 2,000 years since he said he would return, but he hasn't. Maybe he will never return at all. And when you think about it logically, that's not a very good argument, is it? To say something isn't going to happen because it hasn't happened yet doesn't really hold water. Think about it. I kind of, when I was thinking about this, it reminded me of a child, our children. When we tell our kids that we're going to give them this great present, right? But they got to wait for it. They don't like that. We tell them we're going to give them a brand new bike for Christmas, or we tell them we're going to give our preteens a, a phone, or maybe our teenagers a new car. My teenagers are not getting a new car, I promise you that, right? But we tell them all these things, that they're going to get some great gift, but we have to work for it first. Like we've got, it takes time. 
to save up money, to buy these things that they want. But they don't care. What do they want? They want whatever that is, and they want it when? Right now. They want it right now. So logically, this argument of uh, Jesus isn't going to come back because he hasn't come back yet, that doesn't really hold any water. But emotionally, emotionally, I think we can understand it. It's been approximately 726,000 days since Jesus ascended to heaven, give or take. About 726,000 days since he promised he would return. And just like our children do to us, we start to question God's timing. God, are you coming? Why haven't you come yet? Peter goes on, though, to address the way that God looks at time. Look at this, verses 8 and 9 of 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. So he points out that God's experience of time is totally different from ours. Why? Because he created it. He lives outside of time because he was the one that invented time. So from his perspective, it hasn't been that long since Jesus joined him in heaven. And that's why we have to trust this timing. But we don't have to trust this timing just for the second coming. We have to trust it in all areas of our life. And I bet that's a difficult thing to do. Because from where we sit, it can sometimes feel that God is running late, can't it? Maybe you thought by this Christmas, you'd already be married. It seems like God is running late because you don't want to go to another Christmas family function again alone. You thought you'd be married. Or maybe as a couple, you didn't want to spend this Christmas as just a couple. You've been praying for God to provide a child. You wanted a new member of the family, and you thought God would have answered your prayer by now, but he hasn't. Or maybe it's financial stress. You thought that by this Christmas, you would have already gotten that promotion. You would have started that new job, that your business would have taken off by now, but it hasn't, and you're still tight financially. Or maybe you hoped that you would spend this Christmas cancer-free, but the cancer is still there. Your winter is still here. You know, there's lots of different scenarios that take place in your life. And in fact, I just got a call yesterday uh, morning, one of the hardest calls I've had in a while, from a 60-year-old man in our church. And um, he talked most of the time. And when I say talked, he was yelling at me. Uh, He was angry. He was hurt. He was just a broken individual. Um, He got home. Without saying a word, his wife had already packed up everything in the house and moved out and left him. He's got three adult kids that hate him, that refuse to speak to him. And this came out of nowhere. He's been attending church faithfully. He serves this church faithfully. He gives of his time and his energy and his finances faithfully to Northside. And while I was on the phone with him, he's just in tears, just a mess, just bawling and crying. And he's yelling at me, Eric, Eric. Where is God in my mess? Where is God? Why is he letting these things happen to me? I thought that at age 60 I would have a family and they would be functioning well. And I thought that all of these things. You know, I I couldn't tell him and I can't tell you why things have happened the way they are. I can't tell you why 
God hasn't answered the prayers the way that you've prayed them or in the timing that you've wanted. But I can tell you this, and this is what I share with him. Our job as followers of Jesus is twofold. We have to remain faithful no matter what. We have to trust his timing, not ours. We have to trust his timing. Trust that God knows what he's doing, that God knows what is best. His timing is right even when we don't understand it. And that's the first takeaway from this passage. Here's the second promise we learn. God is at work while we wait. Y'all say that with me. God is at work while we wait. Look back at verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now, if you're like me, it's very easy just to skip over this passage. Who cares that Caesar Augustus issued some decree, right? Well, that one verse actually tells us a lot about what God was doing in those 400 years of silence in that long winter. And to understand that, we've got to look at the historical context. At the beginning of those 400 years, Persia, this country of Persia, was coming into the uh, lead. They were gaining ground. They were conquering more and more territory. Well, that didn't sit well with the Greeks, did it? So the king... King Philip, he united all the Greeks. They overthrew the Persians. Then when King Philip died, his son Alexander took over. We know him as Alexander the Great. And his claim to fame, what he was known for, was conquering the entire, the entire known world at that time. This happened about 350 years before Jesus was born. That was so important because it gave the world for the very first time uniformity in language and in thought. This had never happened before, where the entire world had some similarity, had some uniformity in language and thought. It was said back then that everybody knew a little Greek. Therefore, Jesus was born into a world without a language barrier. Do y'all see how important that is? I know history can be boring, but history matters, right? Jesus was born into a world without a language barrier because God was using other nations to prepare the world to hear the news of his son. Not only that, but because everybody could speak a little Greek, the Greeks took the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, and they had it translated into Greek. This allowed all non-Jews for the very first time ever to read about the one true God, to read about the promised Messiah that was coming. Fast forward, about 63 years before Jesus was born. Now the Romans are in charge. They'd overthrown the Greeks. And their rule led to an extended period of world peace. During this time, the Romans built roads and a travel system that we had not had before that allowed everyone everywhere to come and go and visit and move like they never had. Again, God was using other nations to prepare the world for this coming king do you see it for 400 years it appeared that God was silent it appeared that God had forgotten about his people but he wasn't and he hadn't he was orchestrating the entire planet so that Jesus could be born at just the right time like moving pawns on a chessboard, God was moving kings and queens and entire nations according to his will to accomplish his purpose. And church, that should encourage us. 
Because I believe that he's still moving, he's still working, he's still doing that in our lives today, even though we can't see it. Now, admittedly, admittedly, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? It's easy for us to look back at this first Christmas story with all of our knowledge to see, okay, yeah, I see how the roads come into effect and how uh, language comes into effect and how God was doing all of this stuff. It's easy for us to look back then and see it. But for the Israelites then and for us right here today, when we are in the, mental, in the middle of a winter spiritually, it is so difficult for us to see what God is up to, isn't it? When you're hurting, when you've got those doubts, when you're angry and you don't know what's going on, it is hard for you to see how God is moving. But I promise you this, you can trust his timing. And you can be sure that while we are waiting, God is always working behind the scenes. Here's the last thing. God always keeps his promise. Say it with me. God always keeps his promise. Look at this passage one more time. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So we learn a census was taken. Woohoo! Right? Nothing could be more boring than a census. Somebody with a pen and a papyrus or a paper, whatever they had back then, writing down who lives where and how many kids they have and what their ages were. But this was vitally important to that very first Christmas story. And you have to go back 700 years to the prophet Micah to grasp it because he shared a prophecy that would not have made any sense at all to the people he shared it with. This is what he said in Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will rule over Israel, whose origins are from of old. Understand, this was written 700 years before Jesus was born. Caesar Augustus, this pagan emperor, he was the one who issued that decree. And if he didn't issue the decree, then Mary and Joseph would not have been forced to go to Bethlehem to register. And if they didn't go to Bethlehem to register, then this prophecy that was written 700 years prior would have never been fulfilled. Yes, God was working even then. Here's a few more promises that we know were kept that first Christmas. Jeremiah 31 predicts very sadly that a massacre of infants would take place. Then in Matthew 2.16, we read about how Herod had every Jewish boy under the age of two slaughtered in an effort to kill the Messiah. Hosea 11.1 predicts that God would call his son out of Egypt. That's strange because... That wasn't where he was born, that wasn't where he lived, that wasn't his hometown, but that's exactly what happened. Matthew 2, 14, Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt to escape the wrath of Herod, and then they came back when Herod died. Over and over again, we see that God made a promise and he kept a promise. In fact, there are over 300 prophecies about the coming Messiah, and every single one was filled to a detail. God is still in the business of keeping his promises, church. So in the long, dark winters, the spiritual winters that you are facing right now, trust that he is going to keep that promise. When we see all the facts played out in hindsight, 
I think it's hard for us to argue how God achieved what he achieved, how he did what he did. Instead, this is for me personally, I think it's for all of us, our stumbling block isn't to ask the question how, but it's to ask God why. God, why did it take so long? Why didn't you come sooner? And the answer, historically and politically, is this. God was waiting for just the right time for Jesus to be born so that as many people as possible could hear about the coming Messiah. That's why. So that as many people possible could hear about this good news of the Savior of the world. That was then. What about us today? Why is God still waiting to send us Jesus? Why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Well, that answer is actually something that Peter responded with in 2 Peter 3, 9. He says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Here's the key. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Friends, repentance is what leads to our salvation. Repentance leads to salvation. You see, from God's perspective, the longer that he waits to send Jesus, the more opportunity that lost souls have to be saved. The longer he waits, the more that we have a chance to respond. So the answer to the question, why is God waiting? God is waiting for you. Say it with me. God is waiting for you. Tell your neighbor that. God is waiting for you. I know we can laugh and giggle, but I'm serious about this. God is waiting for you. That is why Jesus has not come back yet. And some of you are here today, and you are really glad that he's waited. Amen? Because since last December, last December, we have had 65 people in our church join Team Jesus by placing their faith in him for the first time and being baptized. 65 lost souls have been saved, and we can clap for that. Praise God for that. That's huge. But so many other lives have been changed, not just first-time decisions. So many more have been challenged to grow in their faith to step up their service, to increase their generosity, to be bold in their evangelism, to be a leader in their homes, to be an influencer for Jesus in their workplace, in their communities, and in their schools. And friends, that is why Jesus has waited, because the longer he waits, the more souls are saved, the more lives are changed. But church, you've got to understand something very important. Our job's not done yet. Our job is not done yet. There are still so many lost people that need to hear about the good news of a Messiah. And some of them may be in this room right here, right now. God continues to wait for your repentance. But I gotta let you know this. At some point, at some point, we don't know when, 
God's patience is going to run out. And he will send Jesus back. And for everyone who has not made Jesus their Lord and Savior, for all those who have not placed their faith in him, if Jesus comes back and you have not made that decision, then you've chosen the alternative, which is an eternity in hell. See, Jesus wants us in heaven with him. It's not too late. It's not too late to make that decision today. So I don't know where you are spiritually. Maybe for you it's very cold and dark and gloomy right now. But I do know this. Jesus offers us hope. He offers us restoration. He offers us new life, new birth. He offers us the opportunity to be green again. So if you need to make that decision today, I want to challenge you to come now. We're going to sing a brand new song. It's called Hope Has a Name, and that name is Jesus. So if you need to make a decision, come. If you just need prayer, maybe you're like my friend who called me yesterday. Your world is turning upside down. Jeff and I would love to pray for you. Whatever decision you have, come now as we stand and sing.